Listener Production. Which bird holds the record for the longest migratory flight? And how far did they fly? I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto, and this is The Science Briefing. While international borders and plane travel was shut down during the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, some of us kept on flying. Birds. The migratory habits of birds are wild. I chat to Cosmos Magazine journalist Emma Perfetto about the bodies of migratory birds and the bird that wears the crown for the longest distance flown. Okay, so bird migration, Emma, has long confused people. Why has bird migration been such a difficult thing for us to wrap our heads around over time? Yeah, so migration has long confused people. Aristotle, for one, thought that birds didn't actually leave a place, but just like transformed into another species. Oh, that's a simple explanation. Yep. Oh, completely logical. Other notable people thought that migrating birds were traveling to the moon, (gasps) which can you imagine that? That's so far, guys. Like they're not going to the moon. (laughs) I think that would actually be a great idea for like a children's book. I would would read that. Yeah. (laughs) Or they thought that they were hibernating at the bottom of lakes because, you know, birds famously can swim. And breathe underwater for significantly long (laughs) periods of time. Yeah. It's even said to be a Maori belief that migrating birds are credited for guiding Polynesian people to Aotearoa, New Zealand, around a thousand years ago. Because, you know, they could tell like visually that the birds weren't creatures of the sea Mm -hmm. and would have to land somewhere at some point. So they followed them on boat to see where they would go. Oh, wow. Okay, so we've obviously learned more about bird migration over the years thanks to science, especially why some bird species migrate and why others don't. Emma, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so, you know, there are around 10,000 bird species, you know, on Earth, and about 1,800 of them are migratory. So if you think of rainbow bee-eater birds, for instance, they spend their summers in the southern states of Australia and then their winters up north where it's nice and toasty. They go up as far as Papua New Guinea or Indonesia. There's the Swainson's thrush who usually travel from Canada to Mexico. Birds can fly distances of over 10,000 kilometres and as high as 6,000 kilometres in the air. Wow. I just... I can't fathom being up that high with just your wings to like keep you up there. (laughs) I mean, it's not the moon, but it's still pretty high. (laughs) And the ones that do migrate are doing it for better conditions, you know, better weather, food supplies, kind of like why I travel. Exactly. To stay warm and eat a lot of tapas. Exactly. And then the ones that stay put are mostly able to survive in the conditions that they live in year round. But today we're going to talk about one type of migratory bird, and those are the bar-tailed godwits. Amazing name. What a name. (laughs) And they can be found all over the place. So, you know, along the eastern shorelines of Australia, Alaska, New Zealand, China, and even North Korea. Okay, Emma, tell us about these bar-tailed godwits. Okay, so the scientific name for these birds is Limosa leponica. I think I said that right. (laughs) They have these long beaks and long legs and they're shorebirds, so you can find them along the coasts and in mudflats. They're not the only type of godwit, 
but they're certainly very unique. Okay, so what do we know about their migratory habits? Okay, so we know that they live between Alaska, where they breed, and then Southern Oceania, where they spend their summers. But we don't actually know as much as bar-tailed godwit enthusiasts might like. What we do know is thanks to some really eager researchers, both amateur and professional, and because of them, we have, you know, a better understanding of their behaviour. So in the really early days of tracking these birds, we knew that they roughly followed the summer months. So they would be found in Australia and New Zealand around September through March. And then the rest of the time, they'd be in Alaska where they spend their breeding season. Mm -hmm. And then back in the 1980s, Dick Sibson, an ornithologist, which is a bird expert and a really cool name for it, he first proposed the idea that these birds would migrate by flying nonstop from Alaska to the Pacific which is absolutely insane to comprehend. For a bird, that's nuts. Yeah, so people thought it was nuts. But then more and more people started to believe his theory after an accident that occurred in 1987 in Alaska, which led to numerous juvenile birds passing away. While this was very sad, it was also the first opportunity that scientists had to really get up close and examine the bodies of these birds. And, you know, what they found when they did was pretty incredible. Okay, Emma, the suspense is killing me. What did they find? (laughs) So firstly, these birds only weighed 367 grams. What? So they're teeny tiny, but 55% of that was body fat. Wow. Yeah, they were chunky. Chunky, but tiny. (laughs) (laughs) So scientists already knew from, you know, observing them that the birds got fatter prior to, you know, departing off for migration. But what they didn't know is that the size of the birds' stomachs, their gizzards and their livers was abnormally small, whereas their hearts and their like wing muscles were abnormally large. And that all combined makes them an ideal candidate for flying long distances. Okay, so this is starting to make sense, I think, Emma. Can you unpack this for us? How does this make them ideal candidates? So scientists used to think that these birds were almost like planes. You know, you have a constant structure, but a variable fuel load. So, you know, add more fuel, you'll be able to go farther pretty much. Yeah. But what they found was that not only were the birds putting on weight in you know, preparation for flight, but their bodies also went through like a pretty fundamental restructure in preparation for migration. You know, it makes sense that if they're flying nonstop, then they also need to make sure that the fuel that they have is being used as efficiently as possible. But then once the migration is over, their bodies revert back to their original state. And then there's actually this quote from a 1998 research paper, uh, which was entitled, guts don't fly, that says that, yeah, I know, amazing, incredible. The small size of the nutritional organs of extremely fat bar-tailed godwits is consistent with the suggestion that it is unprofitable and energetically too expensive to carry a digestive machinery over thousands of kilometres of open sea. Emma, that is crazy. So what you're saying is their organs adapt for their needs. Yeah, and then they go back to normal afterwards. That's weird. Absolutely insane. And that's not all. They're really good meteorologists too. 
Apparently, they monitor wind conditions and choose to depart for their migration on days where they think that the wind will give them, you know, the most assistance in the direction that they're going. These birds are wizards. So after learning all of this about these bar-tailed godwits, what more has it taught us about their migratory behaviour and why they're so special? Yeah, so as migration season approaches, the birds have actually been observed to experience what's known as migration anxiety. Yeah, so they get increasingly restless, they move their wings more and they kind of like hop in place and become more active and just like louder in general. Mm -hmm. That sounds like anxiousness to me. (laughs) Yep, yeah, I see myself in these birds and they actually have a word for this, a German word, and I'm going to try and say it and I'll probably butcher it, Zugunruh, I think. And, you know, as I mentioned, they gain weight, but that's not the only way that they change their appearance. So... In breeding season, bar-tailed godwits have this really beautiful sort of rusty orange breeding plumage. They're like little balls of ginger fluff. And then when they need to go and migrate, they'll change and like molt into this greyish brown sort of oh, colourway. Less <laughs> Which actually reminds me of a paper that I wrote about in 2021, which found that migratory birds are usually lighter in colouring compared to their non-migrating counterparts um, as kind of like a protection against overheating while they're flying. Yeah, so, you know, in the same way that we might wear white instead of all black on a really hot summer's day, you know, because lighter surfaces absorb less heat than darker ones, Mm -hmm. they found that the further the birds travelled, the lighter that their feathers tended to be. Wow, there you go. So they've got their greyish-brown travelling cloaks on now. And you mentioned that they travel pretty far. How long do these godwits actually travel? I mean, what does their migration look like? Yeah, so in 2007, scientists were actually able to track a female bar-tailed godwit on her migration journey. So in about mid-March, a female, which was known as E7, (laughs) left New Zealand. She had this battery-powered satellite transmitter on her and she travelled for seven days going 10,200 kilometres in one go until she was at her next destination in the Yellow Sea. She stayed there for five weeks and then after that break, she flew for another five days, another 7,200 kilometres and then landed in her breeding ground of Alaska. And this was the longest known continuous flight of any bird at the time. I mean, this sounds exhausting and I think about it. Like if I have to go on a long flight, my knees get really sore. Imagine if I had to flap my wings that whole time. Just unimaginable. It's times like these that I really am thankful that I'm a human and I can just jump on a plane and, you know, be somewhere in 24 hours and have sat the entire time. (laughs) But as of 2023, it isn't the longest continuous flight anymore because that record was beaten last year. So two wildlife biologists went on a mission to find some godwits and tag them for tracking. So eventually they tracked down a baby male godwit and they attached a tracker to him and they weren't sure if he was going to take off or not because most of the other godwits had left at that point. So, you know, a bit stressful. But in mid-October, five months after he hatched, so still a baby, he left Alaska. 
And he flew for 11 continuous days with a total distance of 13,560 kilometres, which is close to the max range of an Airbus A380, by the way. What? (laughs) Mind-blowing. You know, for us, leaving Australia on a plane and travelling for that far, it could take us, you know, all over the world. It could take us to the US, Africa, Asia, Europe. Insane. And what made this even more impressive was the fact that most juveniles migrate separately from their parents. So it's likely that he made this trip by himself without the guidance of his, you know, elder birds. So this little baby bird broke world records on his first migration. And he did it all alone. All alone. (laughs) And it's, you know, amazing to hear about these incredible feats of migration. But I think there's also a kind of like downside to, you know, this behaviour in the fact that they're never in one place for long. So it's kind of like each place that they stop over in their migration can push off the responsibility of taking care of them to the other, you know, point in the chain that they're heading off to. But that also means that, you know, changes to their migration pathways can have really catastrophic consequences because, you know, if you take one link out of the chain, then they don't have the stopover place and they may not be able to get where they need to go. Yeah. Unfortunately, their population numbers have been declining for decades and it's likely because of habitat loss and degradation. Take the yellow sea, for example. It's a really crucial stopping point on their long journeys. So godwits and other species as well would use the once really rich mudflats to refresh on their long journeys. But now a lot of this area has been urbanised and industrialised and the mudflats are a lot more scarce. And so unsurprisingly, extinction fears are growing. But changes are being made, thankfully. In China, for example, they've created a moratorium on commercial works on their coastlines. Mm -hmm. And following that, much of the Yellow Sea wetlands got world heritage status as well, which is really great. Other countries are starting to follow suit as well. Even North Korea has been insisting by letting scientists in to the country to survey their coast along the Yellow Sea. But even with moratoriums, climate change and rising sea levels are also impacting the coastlines that they live on. Okay, so what next for our world record holding birdos, the bar-tailed godwit? What do we need to be thinking about next? So there are actually a lot of, you know, unanswered questions that still remain about them. So, for instance, why do the juveniles travel separately from the adults? You know, why wouldn't you Mm. want to babysit your babies and make sure that they get where they need to go? Why do they go to the exact same place season after season? And, you know, how do they orient themselves? Even us humans need GPS. However, a professor who specialises in migratory shorebirds, Dr. Turnus Piersma, thinks that the way that we think about animals also needs to change. So he notes that humans have historically analysed animals kind of like machines, you know, that are programmed to do things and ignored the fact that they're sentient beings that, you know, like us, learn from trial and error and are able to communicate, be intelligent and store memories. And I guess I'm looking forward to seeing if any more bar-tailed godwits break their own records in the next few years. So I don't know. I guess I'll report back after the Migratory Olympics. (laughs) 
Emma Perfetto is a science journalist for Cosmos Magazine. You can read more of Emma's reporting by heading to cosmosmagazine.com. This episode was based on reporting done by Drew Rook. You can check out Drew's original article, Birds Without Borders, in issue 99 of Cosmos Magazine. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe. The Science Briefing is produced by Listener and the Royal Institution of Australia. This episode was produced by Bonnie Lavelle. Mixing by Dave Stein. And I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto. Catch you next time.